This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Climate Change Roundtable, presented by the Heartland Institute. This is the weekly show every Friday at uh, noon central time, where we talk about climate and energy topics from a more realist perspective than you get from our corrupt corporate media. We thank you for joining us here live on YouTube, and we hope uh, you brought some friends, and we will see you participate in the chat, and we'll put your comments up on the screen and try to answer as many questions as we can in the time allotted. Uh, It has been a pretty momentous week at the Supreme Court. Yesterday, the Environmental Protection Agency ruled uh, against I'm sorry, I should say the Supreme Court ruled uh, in West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency that the EPA's ability to regulate carbon dioxide emissions is not limitless. This is one of the rare uh, victories, I think, against the deep state and the administrative state that you will see uh, from the Supreme Court. And it's a very important decision, and we'll be talking about that today. With us, as usual, is the usual Climate. Uh, no, I, I called you a usual. Is that what I said, Anthony Watts? I said you're the normal or the usual, and you didn't uh, take kindly to that. So let me just say <laughs> this is the regular lineup for climate change uh, roundtable. With us is senior fellow Anthony Watts. Hello, Anthony. How are you today? Good morning. Yeah, doing pretty well. Yeah, it's a, been a fantastic week out of the Supreme Court, and I'm looking forward to discussing that topic. Yes, yes, sir. Also with us is a senior fellow and the director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy here at the Heartland Institute, H. Sterling Burnett. Hello, Sterling. Hello. And uh, like Anthony, I'd go even farther. I'm positively giddy. (laughs) Gosh, my heart, you you remember the old Grinch cartoon where the Grinch's heart swells three times and it bursts? That was me yesterday. That was you yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That, a lot of a lot of good feelings around the, all around the Heartland <laughs> headquarters for sure. And also joining us today is a research fellow, uh, a trained uh, petroleum engineer, and uh, research fellow here at the Heartland Institute, Linnea Lucan. Hello, Linnea. Hi, and I am also very pleased that this Biden administration is turning out to be, you know, covering some policy to the point where. Uh, this administration is more conservative than we previously hoped, uh, by no fault of their own. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, we can get into some of those details too. You know, we talked about this uh, every Friday at noon central time is Climate Change Roundtable from the Heartland Institute. And on Thursdays at noon central time, we do our weekly flagship in the tank podcast. And we talked about this issue, uh, you know, pretty, pretty much for the whole episode. And, you know, I just think we just just keep the good feelings going and keep talking about it and keep talking about it because it is it really is a, a pretty monumental decision. Uh, as I mentioned at the top there, uh, and as I mentioned to all of all of our uh, guests here on the show, right before we went live, it's not very often that the left takes the L when it comes to a Supreme Court decision. Um, as you as you alluded to there, Linnea, um, you know the Roberts Court uh, traditionally kind of tries to have compromise decisions. They try not to make a definitive ruling on a, an important constitutional question. They, they just kind of, they, they would rule narrowly and then punt it, uh, you know, to, to the future. So basically, you know, that was successful for the left because their strategy has always been to sue and to settle 
and if they don't settle, they'll just sue and, uh, uh, and, and have them get their way because the courts won't stop them. This is one of the few times uh, that I can actually recall where the agenda of the left was stopped in its tracks by the uh, by the by a Supreme Court ruling, and of course we had the abortion ruling and the gun ruling, and then the public prayer ruling. But you know, I think we can all probably make the case today that of those four big rulings uh, against uh, you know the left's agenda and the, and the left's uh, uh, you know policy preferences, this one I think is going to have the most lasting impact uh, because it, it although it applies you know the the abortion ruling for instance applies to abortion law, the gun ruling applies to gun rights, the public prayer. Uh, ruling deals with that specific issue. But here, the decision from uh, written by John Roberts, ironically enough, uh, applies to the EPA in this case. But there was a lot of language in this decision that can be used and will be used in challenges to other administrative agencies in the federal government. And that's why I think uh, for decades, this this decision is going to be is going to be ruled. So just let me read. Uh, I'm going to read a couple excerpts from this decision. And then I'm going to ask uh, you guys to give us your reaction here. Uh, Roberts had written, quote, capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day, but it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt its own such a regulatory on its own such a regulatory scheme. A decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. Uh, that kind of that kind of language doesn't just apply. It applies to the EPA in this case, West Virginia versus EPA. But you can also say it about a lot of other uh, challenges that we may see down the line to the administrative state. So uh, we'll start with you, Sterling, since you seem to be the most publicly happy about this. <laughs> and you did. Uh, <laughs> in fact, all three of you were part of our public statement that we found. You can find it on yep. uh, Heartland.org to see uh, what how our reaction was to this uh, as it happened yesterday. But Sterling. What, what was your t tell us a little bit about what you think the meaning of this decision really is? Well, um, it 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 deals a blow to the EPA and its regulatory ambitions vis-a-vis -vis climate change. Uh, if it is to regulate carbon dioxide at all, it must do so on a very limited basis inside the fence, as they say, through efficiency rates, best available a technology, not switching entire industrial base from coal to renewables. They don't have that power. Uh, beyond the EPA, it, uh, I think this ruling will also limit the ability of the SEC to impose carbon rules. I think it will limit the ability of FERC to justify uh, carbon regulations when approving infrastructure projects and other agencies. Uh, if Congress wants these agencies to... Um, regulate essential carbon dioxide, what we breathe out, what we exhale every day, what is uh, fundamental to life and modern society, they're going to have to go to Congress and get approval. But beyond, as you say, it, you know, it, it, it applies in this case to the regulation of CO2, and I would argue across agencies. But it is a blow to the regulatory state across a range of things. I think it signals that the court is going to take much more seriously uh, the idea that when Congress delegates power, the language that it delegates better specify uh, the power that agencies want to uh, exercise. In other words, they've got to be on point. And if it's not on point in a major 
decisions, things that affect the economy, trillions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, probably even hundreds of millions of dollars because major rules uh, are considered $50 million or above. So that mm -hmm. reaches a lot. Um, <laughs> you're going to have to have specific delegation of specific types of authority, not just uh, we want you to look at something. So go to it. No, it's right. got to be. If you want to tell the world what kind, you, you want to tell the entire United States what kind of cars they must drive, Congress has got to delegate that power. I think it's going to reach to the to the court to the court's decisions, you know, to previous um, uh, regulations on automobiles. It, it's not clear to me. Right. <laughs> Congress has delegated to California the power to tell the entire automobile industry the kinds of cars they will uh, produce. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's the, you alluded to that, Sterling, and it's the major questions doctrine. Uh, I believe it was Gorsuch's uh, concurrence uh, where he wrote a oh, beautiful concurrence. In fact, it's, it's, it's better reading than the, uh, the, the majority uh, uh, yeah. decision written by, uh, by Roberts, as a matter of fact, but he, he wrote in his, uh, in his concurrence quote, under that doctrine's terms, the major questions doctrine administration, administrative agencies must be able to point to quote, clear congressional authorization when they claim the power to make decisions of vast quote, economic and political significance. Uh, Anthony Watts, that's, that's big. And that's now the, the, the law of the land as they, <laughs> yeah, that's, it is. That, that's, that's controlling law right now. Yeah. And you know, the, the next question is, is what are they going to do about the 2009 endangerment finding? Now, the, the EPA used the 2009 endangerment finding, which basically said carbon dioxide is a danger to humans because it's increasing in the atmosphere and therefore it's going to make it warmer and we're all going to, you know, roast. Uh, that was their whole premise of, you know, shutting down coal powered fire, coal power plants and things like that. Um, and so the endangerment finding, the, the question of the day is with this new language, with this new law of the land, is the endangerment finding moot or are they going to use that as some kind of a weasel around to get around the new language? That's the real question. And then um, from my viewpoint, I'm not an attorney, but from my viewpoint, I would say the endangerment finding is moot. But the left, you know, they never stop. They don't they don't take any kind of. Um, no for an answer they they believe that their vision of the future and their their way of doing things is the right way and the only way and the correct way and so they're not likely to back down from this really easily so what are they going to do any any ideas from the rest of you folks i unfortunately i don't think that this case touches the endangerment finding because remember the endangerment finding came out of a previous supreme court decision granting EPA authority to regulate carbon dioxide if it found there was a danger. Now, we can challenge whether it was a good idea for them to find it's a danger, but even in this decision, he's, he seems to reference the climate crisis as being a real thing. We've got, oh, we, yeah, this may be the crisis of the day, but right. there are, but the, so he didn't, he didn't say this isn't a crisis. What he said is there are limits to how you go about regulating that crisis. And because EPA, I think wrongly, found endangerment, um, that opened the door to regulation, but this case basically says, yeah, just like, um, soot can be regulated. It's gotta be done within the limits of the law and the law does not allow, even with soot, it didn't allow the EPA to tell 
every state, they've got to end using coal-fired power plants. It didn't okay. give them that power. So, so with that I in think, mind, I think well, it stands, unfortunately. With that in mind, what I think the future might end up being is that we're going to have a, sort of a balkanization of energy around the United States, where we have some states which aren't going to, you know, regulate CO2, places like Wyoming, which have massive amounts of coal-fired electricity up there, which is why, ironically, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, put their giant supercomputing center up there in Wyoming as opposed to in Boulder because the electricity is cheaper in Wyoming because it's generated by coal. Talk about hypocrisy. Wow. Anyway, so I think we're going to end up with a balkanization of, you know, of this, where some states allow this, some states have power plants that are traditional, some states are going to end up, you know, trying to do it with wind and solar, like California, and California is, they're going to fall flat on their face, because as we all know, wind and solar is not reliable, it is not grid friendly, it is prone to turning off, uh, you know, especially at sunset, you know, the sun goes down, the solar doesn't generate much, and meteorologically, winds start dying down at sunset, so both solar and wind start at sunset and about two years ago california came within a a hair's breadth of just basically shutting down their entire grid because of that phenomena so i think that's what we're going to see I, I think it's going to be some states have reliable power and some states don't i'm Jim, sorry I, to, um, I did mute myself <laughs> so Linnea, uh, why don't you weigh in here? Um, you know, uh, I just maybe will say for the, I have up on the screen for those uh, watching the live stream, the endangerment finding from December 7, 2009, uh, and the administrator, that being the administrator of EPA, finds that the current and projected concentrations of six key well-mixed greenhouse gases, CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, HFCs, uh, PFCs, and sulfur, sulfur hexafluoride, in the atmosphere, threaten the public health and welfare of current and future generations. So that's, you know, the, the EPA declared that these uh, greenhouse gases are uh, are a threat to human health. Uh, this is how they call it pollution. I mean, they, the EPA took it upon themselves to just basically right. declare uh, that, uh, you know, that they don't, they actually have done a great job cleaning the pollution from our power plants. So they decided, well, we'll just call CO2 pollution. And there's a lot of power uh, that comes from that. And this and this Supreme Court said, no, if you want to declare carbon dioxide or emissions from power plants that are not actual pollution, pollution, you're going to have to get Congress to uh, allow you to do that. And Congress hasn't. Yep. And, you know, interestingly enough, sulfur hexafluoride is uh, also related to power plants. It's used as an insulator in these giant switches that they use to switch high tension power lines because it is, a, it is an excellent gaseous insulator. And so that's being regulated. And it, so that also threatens the grid. Um, and, you know, the, the concentration of sulfur hexafluoride in the atmosphere is just beyond insignificant. And yet they're, they're worried about it, you know, creating warming. It's just ridiculous. I, I want to correct one thing. I, I know we want to get Lene in here, and I do too. But I want to correct one thing you said, Jim. The EPA didn't declare carbon dioxide a pollutant. The U.S. Supreme Court did. Oh, because in the Massachusetts US, versus EPA, right. That's right. The U.S. Supreme Court said anything emitted into the atmosphere under the Clean Air Act is a pollutant. So uh, uh, respiration, not just CO2, but water vapor is a pollutant. Right. Anything emitted into the air. 
Yeah. What they no, said no more was, tea kettles. Get rid of those tea kettles. Yeah. <laughs> what they said is, it may be the case that not all pollutants endanger human health, and the EPA has to decide that. Yeah. But uh, it's a pollutant by the the course definition. Right. All right, Linnea. Uh, yep. <laughs> finally, they're going to get out of the way and let you have to say. Go ahead. No, it's all right. Uh, the uh, man, it's it's always just kind of, and the more you learn about, um, you know the atmosphere and the, I guess, lifetimes of certain gases and what their practical effect is given, uh, you know, the fact that CO2 can only block certain wavelengths of energy. At a certain point, the more CO2 you stack up, it doesn't keep blocking more and more energy from escaping. Um, it, it only can cover certain wavelengths. And that's why we have a bunch of different gases that can cover slightly different wavelengths and, um, you know, make our energy balance the way it works now, however it is that it works. I couldn't tell you numbers, uh, but I've always found it really insidious that CO2 is the one that they pick to be, you know, the worst gas ever, because it's the one that's emitted from literally every human activity that exists and every activity of life, period, on the planet. So, I mean, the presence of carbon dioxide and methane, material uh, gases like that, water vapor, Greenhouse gases are what they look for when they're looking at planets in other uh, solar systems to determine whether or not they can hold life. So, uh, you know, and the EPA is pretty well known for demanding impossible solutions to problems that might not be all that urgent. Um, for instance, you know, uh, I've been researching a lot on biofuels like ethanol and biodiesel recently. And one of the things I learned, which I did not know prior to doing this investigation, is that uh, the EPA mandated that the United States blend a certain amount of uh, cellulosic biofuels into, the, into gasoline. Hmm. The weird thing about that is that cellulosic biofuels are just not very common at all. And actually, the amounts that they were mandating wasn't being produced like globally. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't exist. It was impossible. So they were fining all these re uh, refiners for not including a fuel that almost doesn't exist in their uh, fuel mix. And so what the EPA ended up having to do was they had to relinquish their claim on this position and say like, well, okay, so maybe we're not forcing technology the way that we anticipated. Maybe we can't just you know, mandate a technological breakthrough into existence. <laughs> uh, so we'll just, we'll waive the fine if the amount that's like globally produced or that's possible to import doesn't end up meeting our standard. And so it's, the EPA doesn't care. They're, they just throw stuff at the wall. They tell people what to do. And if it turns out it's impossible, then they settle it in court. It has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with reality, even. They just kind of wish and hope that the mandates that they put together will create a reality that they prefer. Yeah, um, yeah. in fact, this might be a good time to ask, go ahead, Sterling, but there's a question from our uh, one of our viewers I want to put up there that kind of relates to what Linnea was just saying, but go ahead. Well, I just want to say, you know, the EPA gets a lot of blame and deserves a lot of blame for a lot of things. But the cellulose, uh, they were enforcing what was passed by Congress under George Bush. 
the clean energy, the law that they passed mandating ethanol specified that increasing amounts of the fuel must use cellulosic ethanol because they thought we pass a law, physics changes, and it will happen. <laughs> and that's, of course, as we know, not the way physics works. And they've been unable to create the cellulosic ethanol. You know, they kept talking about switchgrass, switchgrass. Oh, we'll all be using switchgrass. We won't need corn. Well, guess what? We're still using corn. The Brazilians are still using sugarcane because switchgrass doesn't do it. They can't, yep. they haven't figured out how to do it. So EPA was technically enforcing the law that they were told to do. But what happened was in the law, they were allowed a waiver if the technology didn't, uh, didn't come to fruition. And uh, after thinking they could find their way to cellulose, they said, you know what, we're going to have to issue the waiver because it, it, as, as Linnea rightly pointed out, it doesn't exist. Well, so they'll, they'll, they'll keep those, going out. Yeah. They'll keep going out things, there. Oh, God, silly, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just one of those things where Congress thinks they write words into law and it changes reality. Right. I mean, they, they might as well have written to the law that uh, we, we need to get energy from unicorn droppings. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. so we'll just Same have to effect. continue the search. I have to Same continue effect. the search for unicorn droppings. We mandate so, uh, that we mandate that every uh, aircraft in the U.S. has to be powered by a Star Trek warp drive by 2024. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just made Anthony's day. I'll and tell it, you, though, there's a perfect example of how the EPA pushed some technology and it fails miserably. And it, the, the, the gas can, you know, you know, the new gas cans that we have, you know, the five gallon gas cans that have these spouts that only allow you to dispense fuel if you shove it down into the nozzle or in receptacle a certain way. And it never works. <laughs> People hate these things. And you end up spilling gas all over the ground. And, and, and it just there's a black market out there on eBay where you can buy replacement nozzles for these gas cans because the EPA mandated ones are so poorly designed and work so badly that people just screw this. I'm getting rid of it. I mean, that's a perfect example of the EPA trying to solve a problem of gasoline vapors and failing miserably at it. Yeah. But I, I will say that I will give the EPA some credit. Now, you know, an interesting thing, the, the formation of the EPA kind of goes back, it links to the moon landing, believe it or not, in 1969. When uh, on July 20th, 1969, when we had the moon landing, you know, that was one of the most read newspaper issues all around the world ever. There was also a story in there about Lake Erie catching fire. And so that Lake Erie catching fire got a lot of views because of the moon landing. And so that was kind of an impetus for change. And of course, we ended up uh, under the Nixon administration forming the EPA. And the EPA was doing good work, necessary work at the beginning, because we did have real pollution problems. We right. had smog in L.A. that was just choking and you couldn't see more than a mile. We had rivers that were polluted. We had uh, toxic waste dumps like Love Canal. We had all these things that were just absolutely terribly wrong with the way that we were treating the environment. And the EPA, to its credit, has fixed those things. And we don't have those problems anymore. You can see clear across L.A. now. You can, you know, uh, drink cleaner water. And a lot of those problems have completely disappeared. But what's happened is we've created this monster bureaucracy in search of a purpose. And now they're after, the, you know, carbon dioxide. Right. And but here's the thing. 
there's a thing called climate sensitivity about climate di uh, carbon dioxide. And this is not something that's generally discussed in the media. It's, it's something on the science level, but it's extremely important to understand. And this is from our Climate at a Glance website. This little chart here shows the history of climate sensitivity. The thing about it is, is that, and let me explain what climate sensitivity is. It is the temperature which we will reach by a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the, the number. And so the problem is that science has not nailed this down. The range is all over the map. We've got everything from around six degrees for a doubling of CO2 down to less than a degree. And yet, without having that certainty, without science actually nailing down that value, the EPA went and created its endangerment finding and all of these other restrictions based on a belief system that, well, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> but that shouldn't be the way science works, unfortunately. And uh, the, the most important thing to note here is that estimates from observation, uh, observations of temperature in the atmosphere and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 2009 and 2011 came in at less than a degree, 0.8, to about 1.3 degrees centigrade for a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Those numbers are not crisis level numbers. And so... What if it turns out that we do double the CO2 in the atmosphere because China and India are just going full steam ahead? Well, if we end up with these lower estimate values, then the whole thing's going to fall apart. And there's not going to be this, this, this crazy need to regulate everything related to greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide. What will happen then, Anthony, is that environmentalists will, will take a victory lap? They'll claim victory in restricting, in in in, in While preventing they're playing, we are the rising. Champions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they'll they'll claim victory for the trillions of dollars they've squandered to fight uh, the temperature from rising above one point five or two two degrees. And they'll say, "See, if we hadn't done all that, if we hadn't spent all that money, we'd be it, it would right. be toast." And so now we can move on to the next crisis that we need to regulate uh, society out of existence. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a lot of great viewers here on our live stream on YouTube. And uh, uh, Morgan Willemse mentions that uh, warp drive wasn't invented until at least 2060. Uh, Linnea, <laughs> you're 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 young enough. You'll probably be able to experience that. So uh, you can you have that to look forward to. <laughs> oh yeah, 40, I'm sure. In 40 years. Uh, the, but uh, a serious question here from uh, Phil. Let me go find it. Here it is. Uh, he said. I did read the Supreme Court decision and first thought in doing so was what will the administration's next court or regulation move or action be? Uh, and I think that's a very good question. Um, it's it, again, as we talked before we even went live, you know, it's it's this is an unusual time to be an environmental leftist or, or to be anybody who ad advances, uh, you know, a leftist agenda because they just took four losses in a row. Uh, these people are not used to losing. Uh, this is, you know, the EPA has basically been able to run roughshod over our economy and do things like regulate uh, what I, down to what a gas can should be, how a gas can should be designed. And so but now they've been they've been pulled up short by by the Supreme Court. Um, I think it's going to take a long time to really rein in their full power, their, the, the abuse, the full abuse of their power, I should say, and many other agencies. But this was a pretty hard tug. Uh, but I would not expect either. Um, you know, the environmental leftists who like to sue and uh, use the courts to get their way are going to give up just because of this one decision. And I don't think, uh, you know, Gina McCarthy, who used to be head of EPA under Obama, but is now some sort of domestic climate czar, 
uh, for for President Biden. And and the EPA itself is going to give up. They're going to try to move forward and continue to just go on as normal. What do you think's next as far as the EPA is concerned, guys? Well, it won't be go on as normal because normal is overreach, overreach, overreach uh, and win most of the time. This this ruling does place some serious restraints, but you're right. They're going to continue. They're going to continue on doing. Um, now, remember, the court didn't say. We can't in the use of fossil fuels or greenhouse uh, or stop greenhouse gas emissions. The court said Congress has to act to do that. So mm -hmm. the administration first going to work with its allies in Congress and try and get its version, whatever version of the Green New Deal is passed, because if they pass that, then EPA will be empowered to do the very thing they were now stopped from doing because the court just said it's a matter of who has the authority. They didn't say Congress didn't have that authority. So I think the Biden administration will push hard as the uh, the Hill article you referenced mentioned. Uh, Schumer might have to cut a deal with Manchin. But then you still have the problem of uh, Manchin has, as of yet, held out and said he won't forego the filibuster. He won't abandon it. Uh, Sienema has said the same. Um, and so any of the Green New Deal stuff has to get through Congress and it's going to have to get over a filibuster mm -hmm. unless they change their tune. So that's going to be a hard row to hoe. Uh, the second thing they can do is regulate as they traditionally have. That will have a much more limited effect. Remember, that's what Trump did. Trump actually mm -hmm. went back uh, you don't have to agree with what Trump did, but Trump went back and said, we, we are going to regulate carbon dioxide emissions and we're going to do it within the fence. And we're going to do it by increasing the efficiency rates demanded from boilers. And so he put in the uh, American clean, um, clean energy rule or America clean electricity rule, something like that. And uh, the EPA may have to revisit that and see what they can do through uh, efficiency rates of boilers and heat rates. Mm -hmm. um, other agencies will have to do the same. The, the, you know, they're, they're going to have to strike down their grand plans and tinker around the edges to still get what they want. Right. Yeah. And in the fall, we may very well have a tsunami of red tide in Congress, in which case um, we'll have yet another win and the leftists will not be able to push the EPA to do more things, you know, or give the EPA additional power because it's going to get these kinds of things will get stalled in Congress. Well, actually, I think they'll be more dangerous then because then it'll be a lame duck Congress and they'll try and get a lot of stuff done that they uh, they said, look, this is our last gasp. Yeah, we'll we'll push, push, push before we're out. Yeah, it's possible. I mean but you can also overturn that stuff later. Right. I think you're going to see a lot of legal challenges. You know what? I, I was thinking this morning, um, you know, about during the Trump, the Trump administration, uh, Scott Pruitt was head of EPA. He had a background in energy uh, in the private sector. And that was the first time that somebody not from the professional movement had not been uh, pretty much in charge of EPA. It seems that that, you know, uh, if if you have any 
balance to your thinking about protecting the environment. In other words, there's costs, there's costs to, uh, to, to there's cost, there needs to be a cost benefit analysis, right? If you're going to regulate there, you have to be honest about what the cost is. And the EPA for decades has been trying to, you know, make it cleaner by this much, this, this much more, and this much more, and this much more, and this much more, you know, um, all of us, except for Lene are old enough to remember that old commercial, uh, you know, with the, with the crying Indian and, uh, or native Americans, excuse me. Ironized uh, <laughs> Cody. Ironized Cody, right? You know, and, and he looks upon the 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 all the garbage floating in the lake and all around the shore and all of that stuff, uh, and that's that's when EPA was re relatively new. That was from the 1970s, and and then EPA was doing a great job, but you know they keep trying to make things like regulating pollution. I think I, I mentioned either on last week's podcast or on another different podcast last week, but compared to the 1970s when EPA started regulating automobiles, for instance, uh, the, the pollution that comes out of an exhaust pipe of a modern automobile is something like 90 or 95 percent cleaner than, than, say, a 1982 That's Datsun right. was. And, uh, but, and there's a cost. It's been extremely expensive to get to that point. But the EPA and, and a lot of, in a lot of frankly, professional environmentalists say that's still not clean enough. And so it, right. it may cost it may cost five trillion dollars to get another one percent cleaner, uh, but they don't care yeah. because their their mandate is is just to continually exist. And if you declare victory, uh, there's no reason for you to exist anymore. They don't understand the law of diminishing returns. Right. They do understand it. They just don't care. <laughs> they don't oh, okay. care. What, what, what they understand is the law of uh, expanding our power purview and mission creep. So right. that, that dominates the law of diminishing returns for them. But um, someday I hope we actually have one of these podcasts where we discuss whether the EPA really did that much good. <laughs> we, we keep praising the early EPA. Um, I've looked at a lot of data that came before the EPA, and uh, I, I'm not convinced that they did as much good as they're given credit for, but the Are world is cleaner. I think technology changed a lot, regardless mm -hmm. of the EPA. So you think? So you hey, we're we're here to talk about it. <laughs> so you think on whole the EPA has done more harm than good? I don't know if on whole it's done more harm than good, but I'm not sure that they should be credited for a lot of the cleanup that happened. Uh, if, if you look at the history before the EPA, first off, the government created most of the pollution that we were cleaning up by violating property rights in the late part of the 19th and 20th centuries by saying, we're going to, we're going to pervert, we're going to subvert the common law, which protected streams, rivers, and lands from pollution by people bringing suits and saying, you can't kill my cattle with pollution. They said, no, 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 we can't let that get in the way of economic progress. So we're going to pass laws that override the common law and we're going to let companies pollute. And they did. <laughs> they just start pouring effluent into the rivers. But that was because Congress passed laws and states passed laws allowing that kind of activity. And then, having created a, a mess, some states were already, had already gotten on board and said, man, we got to clean this stuff up. And mm -hmm. in those states, the pollution was being cleaned up faster than occurred after EPA came in because EPA set a floor. And then EPA set, uh, rather than, we could have cleaned up coal emissions much sooner. But they said, we're not going to regulate coal from existing. We're going to grandfather in all these existing plants. So we're not going to force them to adopt new technologies. Well, that told the people who, who owned old coal plants, 
<laughs> why adopt any new technologies? I'm going to just keep doing what I do because I'm exempt and we'll put it on the new ones. So had they said, no, what we're trying to get at is pollution. Here are the levels we want. Figure out how to do it. They mm. would have adopted those technologies in the existing plants. They didn't do that. There's a great no. book on that. So I, I'm just I'm just saying they had a very short window where they had a really, really big impact. On lead, they had a huge impact. On mercury, they had a huge impact. But for a lot of the other things, I think they got credit where credit wasn't due. And very shortly thereafter, it started to be a net negative. Yeah, I want to correct something I said earlier, which was incorrect. I said that in 1969, Lake Erie caught fire. Yes. That's not technically correct. It was the, the, the river that fed Lake Erie right there, very near the junction, very near the delta going into Lake Erie. The Cuyahoga River, it yep. caught fire on uh, July 22nd, 1969. That was the fifth time it had caught fire, but it was the first time it caught attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean... So actually, I would argue, Sterling, that certainly over the last at least 10 or 20 years, the EPA has done more harm than good because through the endangerment finding uh, and through this, you know, West Virginia versus EPA, this was this case, you know, West Virginia, a coal state, North Dakota, another energy state and two coal companies sued EPA saying you're not allowed to, you know, you, you were never given the authority to regulate carbon dioxide emissions from power plants uh, in that fashion. And of course, they've won. And this is a huge victory uh, for common sense. And if, if they want to regulate carbon dioxide, you go, you can go to Congress, they'd be uh, maybe they'll pass a law. Maybe this, pre this president would certainly sign it. But every time something like a cap and trade scheme or something else comes up, it fails. It fails in Congress. Uh, but this an EPA for the last 20 years has been aggressively uh, attacking our energy producers in this country. Um, right. You know, again, our coal and our coal and natural gas fired power plants are cleaner than anywhere in the world. Uh, and, you know, they don't pollute as much as you know people may think that we have scrubbers on these on these stacks of where emissions come out that takes to care of a lot of the sulfur the mercury and all of these and the and the pm uh 2.5 the uh, particles in the air it, this has been successful but when an epa has such an aggressive anti uh normal energy stance it makes it hard to innovate it makes it hard to invest and it makes energy more expensive for everybody. So certainly on this issue on carbon dioxide emissions from power plants, it has been a lot more, uh, it's been a lot more harmful than helpful. Wouldn't you agree, Linnea? Right. I want to add something to that. And that is the law of unintended consequences. One of the things that happened because of the EPA and because of the cleanups early in the seventies, those were good things. But as you say, they've gotten, they've become almost draconian now chasing after things that aren't really all that relevant. But one of the unintended consequences of the all of the different environmental laws that's been put in place in the United States has been an export of all of our manufacturing, not all of it, but a good portion of our manufacturing to places like China and India. And so we've ended up with, with fewer jobs and a dependence on foreign countries for the goods and services that we use on a daily basis. I mean, just look at how much stuff in your house is coming from China and look at how China has grown and is now turning into a superpower. And uh, they've got a Navy that's going to be bigger than the U.S. Navy by 2030 if they continue their growth. So, you know, there's a place where the environmental laws have actually done more harm than good, in my opinion. Right. And it's... 
It's interesting on on this issue, you know, I was reading something the other day, I can't quite remember where I picked it up on, it was probably on What's Up With That, um, but <laughs> someone had pointed out that, you know, the when you emit carbon dioxide from North America, it doesn't just stay in the atmosphere above North America, right? We live under one atmosphere, more or less. There's mixing. I'm not going to get into <laughs> all of that because I don't fully understand it. And I, I'm not sure too many people do fully understand it. Um, but when you outsource your manufacturing to countries that pollute worse than you pollute worse than you do, like Anthony said, you're making the problem worse by doing that in the end. Because if you were just manufacturing stuff in the United States with all of our environmental regulations, or at least, you know, ideally a trim, you know, a, a significantly less bulky version of it, then you would be emitting a whole lot less than were you to send it off to China or India or somewhere else that doesn't worry about that stuff nearly as much. So if you're actually worried about carbon dioxide, you would try to keep it here because you hmm. still need those products, right? And it's the same thing with the with the EPA and all the environmentalists when it comes to mining for their electric vehicles and everything. You know, they don't want to open up new mines here where we actually, you know, reclaim the land and, and do a pretty good job of cleaning up after ourselves these days. Uh, they want to send it to the Congo where there are no environmental regulations or protections, where there's a lot of, you know, um, child labor and stuff. And they're totally fine with that. They just don't want to see it in their own backyard. So... And Go ahead. And, and interestingly, that's about to get worse. When Anthony was talking about California earlier, I saw today, and I haven't read, I haven't read the story. I haven't had the time, but I saw a, a couple of headlines on stories indicating that California wants to tax lithium. Lithium is critical to we 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 talk about lithium-ion batteries, folks, that go into every electric car. I don't and know so now California yeah. wants to, to tax lithium that we're just trying to get off the ground producing here now. Yeah, They're and the if only the legislators there would take lithium. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Uh, or, well, sure I, what I, won't, I won't say what I would like them to take, but <laughs> regardless, um, I'm not a kind man. Um regardless, they're, they're talking about taxing the very thing that's critical to the to all the technologies that they want to push. And uh, I would go back farther. I'd say it's not just the last 20 years. It may be the last 20 years where they focused on energy, but the EPA has been a rogue agency since at least Ronald Reagan was ended his presidency. It started under Bush with regulations of water. We're going to protect wetlands, no net loss of wetlands. You won't find the word wetlands in the Constitution or in the Clean Water Act. Right. Uh, but Bush set that as a goal and the EPA wholly embraced it. And they've been running ever since expanding mission, creeping mission, growing mission, because there's not a single agency. I don't know a single agency where they say, I hope our budget's less next year. I hope we have fewer staff <laughs> and power. I don't know that agency. So the EPA is just like every other agency. They want more. Yeah, and uh, it and that opened up not, you know, 20 years ago, that opened up under Bush. Well, and the, one of the one of the things that during the Trump administration, we found out is that the EPA was barely cleaning up Superfund sites the entire time 
during the Obama administration and probably even the Bush administration. And Trump came in and, and cleaned up, I, I think, like a record number in a single administration of Superfund uh, polluted sites. And that's just... It just goes to show their their focus, their laser focus on this climate change issue is making them totally blind to the things that are actually within their that's written purview. Point. Yeah, now that's it. Like, because because doing Superfund doesn't increase their mission. It just they, no, they it, can call that's for, rid they of can, they can it call checks things more, off, yeah, right? Yeah, they can Can't. call for more money uh, to clean up Superfund or for their lawsuits to clean up Superfund. But it doesn't actually create new departments. Yeah. Uh, so, Anthony, you asked me to bring this uh, this picture, I guess, this story here. Beijing releases air pollution data uh, with a picture. Now, now, that's pollution. That's what pollution looks like. And uh, that's, that's worse than very different. we saw in Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 real pollution. And we don't have that in the United States. And that's a good thing. Uh, and, and it's because uh, we this is the place if you want, you know, if you want great industrial oops, somebody's phone. There we go. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, if we need, as Linnea points out a lot, if if these products products have to be made, the modern life requires uh, the use of coal, natural gas, uh, oil, fossil fuels. Um, without it, we don't have modern life. And if you're going to have, if you're going to have coal plants, if you're going to have uh, natural gas plants, if you're going to have oil refineries, they should be in the United States. They shouldn't be in China because we have higher standards. Uh, we have better technology and we, we can do all of this while keeping the environment clean, which is what the EPA is supposed to care about. Right. But they're not a you global know, agency. And so they exported all the places like China and India and well, so what, you know, but we've solved our problem here. And, and that's not how it works. It, you know, they talk about um, their mission and how it's improved. Well, yes, it's improved it in the United States, but it's also exported the same stuff elsewhere, as you see in China. And we've also got the same problem with trash and plastics. You know, you look at some of these places, you know, like Bangladesh and, and um, uh, places like uh, Indonesia and other places where they just throw their trash straight into the rivers and then it goes into the oceans and you see this these endless sea of plastic floating on the surface. And somehow the environmentalists think America is responsible for that. And we're not. It's really the rest of the world. We don't have those problems. We have strong recycling programs and we don't throw the stuff into the ocean. But ninety More than 90% of the plastic in the oceans comes from uh, two or three countries and uh, a lot of the a lot of the serious plastic pollution in the oceans comes from one industry, which is the uh, commercial fishing industry from those countries. Long, yeah. Maybe some things just can't be made here. Yeah, well, maybe, but but they're still going to get made. But that's to assume that if they're not made here, they're not made anywhere. What the environmentalists, as far as I can tell, what they'd really like. Have you ever seen those pictures of the Earth from from from? Uh, from space and there's this one really really dark corner of the world and it's called north korea that's what they'd like the united states to look like they'd like it that's the yeah. environmental uh nirvana for these guys they think they'll still have their houses on the coast and be able to run their jacuzzis but have but but somehow have the energy system of North Korea, which is, well, non-existent, which is why you don't see lights yeah. over them at night when you fly yeah. your satellites. Yeah, if you it's, overuse it's electricity madness. there, it's punishable by death. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah. it's it's madness. Well, you don't have to worry about being punished by death if you don't have the electricity to overuse. And most of the country does not. You yeah. know, they're still they're still cooking in clay pots using animal dung. And uh, that may, you know, I'm not sure that makes for a great environment. It certainly doesn't make for great human health when you look at uh, the, the health of North Koreans on their, uh, you know, their, their gross scales, their premature mortality, their, uh, on, on almost any scale you take, uh, they don't do well. And that's because they're impoverished. They don't have good nutrition. They don't have power. They don't have modern medicine. And uh, if for some reason, environmentalists want that writ large. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to have an exit question here. I think we, uh, we're getting close to wrapping up. Um, you know, so we've been talking during this podcast about this momentous Supreme Court decision, and it was West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency. This victory doesn't happen without somebody filing a lawsuit against the overreach of EPA or any other federal agency, but in this case, EPA. And so I'll, I'll ask each of you, uh, hopefully you'll have an answer to this question. What should the next lawsuit be? What, 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 is, the, what is the current uh, overreach of power that EPA is exercising that needs to be uh, you know, put in check through a lawsuit? Sterling? Uh, there's two. That's uh, Endangered Species Act. It's not the EPA. They, they need to be suing the Fish and Wildlife Service into submission to <laughs> and, 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 and somehow we need to be able to bring class action suits against environmentalists, because even when the Fish and Wildlife Service makes a good decision about delisting a species, um, the environmentalists get, get it overturned in court. Maybe maybe it's time to um, to. Uh, um, I can't think of it, but to remove some judges, to impeach some judges that refuse to follow the law repeatedly and keep getting overturned when it goes up. But in the meantime, bad things are happening. The other thing is the Clean Water Act, the overreach on the Clean Water Act. They're bringing it back. Basically, they've scrubbed the Trump administration's uh, reasonable EPA, reasonable fish and wildlife uh, endangered species changes that said habitat must be habitat before you declare it critical habitat. It, can, right. it should actually be able to sustain the species you say should be able to be sustained there. And that uh, wetlands aren't everywhere. Wetlands mean a certain thing. And uh, so those are the two things. I would also say, Jim, uh, that the other thing this case shows is not just the importance of lawsuits, but it, it shows just how important elections are because this doesn't happen, not just if someone doesn't sue because they were suing left and right before. Mm -hmm. It You have to have the right judges on the court. And we know who appoints those judges and who appointed these three. You know, right. say what you will about Donald Trump. You don't have to like everything he do. You don't have to like almost anything he did. But if you care about the Constitution, the judges he put on this court have made an important, uh, an important difference. And it's true for this court and it's true for a lot of lower courts below them. Exactly. Anthony. Well, I, I think that the, the most draconian policy out there from the EPA is called WOTUS waters of the United States. Um, this is a, this has to do with what uh, Sterling was talking about where, uh, you know, they're talking about potential habitat, you know, this, this snail might live on your farmland kind of an idea. Um, and so we've had situations where the EPA has come in and 
and fined and even threatened jail time to, to farmers and other landowners where they wanted to put like a, a fire protection pond on their property. And the EPA says, no, the, the, some snail might live there eventually. So therefore you can't do it. And it's just draconian. They're basically erasing private property rights in the name of something that might happen, could happen, maybe happen. We're not sure it could happen, but it's a potential. Uh, that It's just crazy. And so that's the kind of thing where the EPA has had just draconian overreach and it needs to be slapped down hard. Yeah, I'm surprised, Sterling. You didn't mention that uh, Wotus is one of your uh, well, <laughs> one of your hobby horses. That's what I was talking about when I talked about yeah. wetlands. The whole wetlands yeah. thing is Wotus. That is yeah. Wotus. yeah. Right. Where where I used to live in California, around Chico, California, they have what they declare as wetlands, which are dry 99% of the time during the year. There's these little vernal pools that exist in some of the fields, and you know they get to these these critters that that pop up when there's a rain and they're the same things that you can buy from the hobby stores like the sea monkeys so i'm serious <laughs> they're, they're these little brine shrimp that pop up in these vernal pools where the eggs stay dormant you know and then the rain comes and they swim around and they make some more eggs and then it dries up and they all die and they've declared these things as wetlands even though they are dry 99% of the year. Uh, 99% of the year, there's absolutely no water on these things. And, and yet they've used that as a hammer to stop all kinds of development, including a new high school in the area. And so that's the kind of overreach that's going on. Mm -hmm. And Linnea, you sent me a link to put up on the screen. I think yep, you, I you sure have your did. answer too. Yep. So right now there's another case that's coming up, uh, Young versus EPA. And the basic issue here is that uh, the EPA has uh, science advisory boards and the people that are on these boards are grant recipients. Yeah. And this is one illegal, uh, supposedly, although for some reason, you know, no one's holding the EPA to account, I guess, because it would have to be the EPA investigating themselves to hold themselves to account for things like this. Uh, but it immediately reading about this issue immediately brought to mind um, a quote from my one of my favorite books, which is State of Fear by Michael Crichton. And anyone in the uh, chat that hasn't read it, if you're into this issue, it's just, it's my favorite book. It's awesome. So there's a quote that I've pulled up. And that is that right now, scientists are in exactly the same position as Renaissance painters, commissioned to make the portrait the patron wants done. And if they're smart, they'll make sure that their work subtly flatters the patron. That is such an astute observation about how climate science is done now. Yep. And the fact that the EPA science advisory boards are staffed with these people is it's just a it's just a big old party of of buddies protecting <laughs> each other exactly. and yeah. funding each other. And it has to stop. And at the same science. time, they're all Secret. saying we're all recipients of giant amounts of, of oil, dirty, nasty oil money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it, yeah. it basically it's 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 projection. They're they're getting all this money, you know, millions and billions of dollars and grants and all kinds of things. And what do we get? We don't get anything from Exxon. <laughs> we don't get anything from the Koch brothers. They don't even know who the hell I am. And yet somehow <laughs> I am I am smeared and slandered on a regular basis mm. of being recipient of giant amounts of money from the oil companies to say these things. Well, that's crap. Yeah. The, well, like the, I've the, joked before, I have received money from <laughs> oil companies. That's you have. She got a, she got a paycheck. Was, 
You know, I was yeah. working offshore, but I can find you. They can finally yeah. say that people at yeah. the Heartland Institute have been paid by big oil. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was honest work, Linnea. You're right. You got to be yeah. 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 Now, you know, Linnea is right. The idea that was another thing that Trump tried to roll back was secret science, science that wasn't peer reviewed. But also he worked very hard to try and roll back. I mean, he, he, he passed regulations that have then since been rescinded um, that said grant recipients can't be the ones making the decision about grants. You have to have a separation. So whoever your advisor is, he can't be giving grants to him to himself. And Biden says, no, 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 we, we don't want our, our administration to uh, people to leave and go out into industry right away. But it's OK for our science advisors to recommend that they get money right. for their that's, own yeah. research. There should be a rule, separation of grants Weird. and graft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was. No wonder it, that they the tried money to pass that up. rule and it's been rescinded. So Lene is exactly right. That's huge. Yeah, I mean, so I, I alluded to this earlier. Is this when Scott Pruitt was appointed head of EPA? The the media, our corrupt corporate media, and the environmental left uh, lost their lost their marbles, and it was because it was literally the first time somebody that wasn't in the club, you know, wasn't hadn't had, didn't have experience in the revolving door between EPA and other regulatory agencies and the professional environmental uh, movement, which is supremely well-funded. And so there's been this revolving door over and over. This is why Gina McCarthy, she was Obama's EPA administrator. She goes into the professional environmental movement, comes right back for Biden as her, as is uh, uh, as Biden's domestic climate czar. And Scott Pruitt and, and a lot of the people that Donald Trump appointed to, to the agencies didn't have that experience. They were outside the club. You think about even Republican appointees to EPA, someone like Christine Todd Whitman, was she a friend to industry? Was she a friend to real science? No. As a Republican appointee, she was she had bought into the climate cult. She had bought into the idea that we have to get off of fossil fuels. We have to reorder our entire society. It wasn't quite as aggressive as it is today, but she was part of the club and she didn't uh, she didn't rock the boat, as they say. Uh, she went along to get along. And after she retired, she she kept those views and she became wealthy doing so. And so, you, you know, this 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 lawsuit doesn't stop that from happening. But I think it does give an opportunity to kind of better examine these sorts of things because there's corruption when you have such a revolving door among well-funded environmentalist uh, professional organizations and the people that are supposedly supposed to be using objective science to smartly and reasonably regulate uh, the environment. Yeah, it's not. Well, and I wanted to point out too, um, as we're on that the topic of them getting money, um, a lot of these big green, you know, environmentalist organizations, the NGOs there, they're the ones receiving it, like Exxon donations. You know, who are they? What are they talking about? That you know, something like the Heartland Institute gives these donations when Exxon and BP and Chevron give millions and millions of dollars to environmental organizations. I, it just blows my mind, but it's that old yes, but that's adage. clean money, unlike the dirty money. Yeah, we don't get. <laughs> the, the dark money. Uh, yeah. But that's it's the, the old adage of whatever they're accusing you of, they're accusing you of it because they're doing it. And they just assume that everyone must be doing what they're doing. Right. So. Well, uh, th I think that'll wrap it up. We're here almost at the hour mark. Uh, this has been uh, the latest, I think the 20th 
episode of Climate Change Roundtable. We have been celebrating the, the victory for common sense, uh, at least in one case, against the EPA. And uh, I think we can look forward to some more constitutional decisions down the road. I want to wish everybody that's watching this or listening to this a very happy Independence Day. July 4th is just a date, but it is Independence Day. I would remind also our viewers that uh, Anthony Watts holding up to the screen the latest print edition, hot off the presses, Climate at a Glance, Facts on 30 Prominent Climate Topics. It's a fantastic book. You can get it at Amazon.com. Uh, I believe it's only 10 bucks, so it's affordable to buy for you and for lots of friends. Is there anything anyone else would like to say before we close out? Nope. Happy Independence Day. Happy, happy Independence, Independence Day. Day. That's good. Yes. Happy Independence Day. And be careful out there. Don't blow your fingers off with firecrackers. Very good advice. Thank you all so for listening. I encourage Nancy Pelosi to play with fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Again, you can direct your hate mail on that one to hsburdett at heartland.org and you can also <laughs> and you can always actually contact this show at think at heartland.org we'd love to hear your ideas on perhaps future topics thank you so much for watching and listening and we will see you next friday bye bye <laughs> <laughs>